Well, welcome everybody to City Life. You might be like, man, why did they throw Terrence in at the end? That's so I can gather myself emotionally after that video. Y'all have it easy. I got to get up here and speak now with a lump up here in my throat. But uh, <laughs> as I want to welcome you here to City Life, but I also want to uh, welcome a friend of mine. His name is Nigel Anderson. Uh, he's from Crossroads Church in Norfolk. Thank you. I can give it up for him. But the reason he's here is, is they've been at a, a forefront of the conversation we've been having for weeks here now in our series, Race and Politics. And they've had something called, uh, what do you call it? The City Collective, where pastors get together the, the first Wednesday of every month to talk about what the path forward is. They've started things called Hope Talks, where it's police officers, it's activists, it's community leaders, it's pastors, all at a table together, dialoguing about what the path forward is. So they've been at, at it, this conversation about race for some time now. Yeah, so, we've been been working and trying to push forward because we don't think anybody has the full perspective. Together with the gospel, uh, we can actually find a path for this effective for all people. So it's been fun, man. God's been doing a lot of cool stuff. No, I know you rap. Go ahead and so hold it up a little higher. Hold it like this. So in, <laughs> in Jesus' name. Uh, <laughs> that'll, that'll be good, though. Stereotypical rap <laughs> mic right here like this. But I invited him uh, the same way we invited Zion Community to be a part of our group discussion on race weeks ago, I invited him so this could be a, a group talk uh, about what we're speaking on tonight. We're going to press into Ephesians 2 uh, again tonight. Ephesians 2 verses 14 through 16. At this point, if you bring a Bible and you open it to it every week, there should be a crease where it just permanently opens to those pages because we've been there so long. But Nigel, before I even uh, go to that, could you open us in prayer? Yeah. Father, we love you so much and we just glorify you and thank you for this time to be here together. We thank you for the grace you give us and for the love you pour out on us, God. We thank you that on the cross... You purchased us through all the division, all the walls we brought up. You purchased us, broke those down, and bring us home to the Father. And in the matchless name uh, of Jesus, we come to you right now and just say, please bless our time together. We worship you. We lift all this up to you, and we just appreciate who you are. Let us walk out of here a little more in love with you yes. and a little more in love with each other than when we came. Yes. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right, so we're going to read from Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. We're jumping right in the Bible tonight. I hope if you're here, you're ready to jump into God's Word. So Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16 is where we're going to read. In Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16, it says the following. It says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. So as we get going tonight, just to get our, our minds working, when was the last time you were in a car with somebody you loved, whether you were driving shotgun, you're at the wheel, and you're just sitting in silence. Somebody's been offended. Somebody wants to be acknowledged, and nobody's willing to break the ice. Steph and I alone in this? Anybody else? <laughs> all right, thank you. Just do not leave me up here all by myself, right? <laughs> I didn't raise my hand either. I'm like, just y'all, just y'all. Some of y'all are like, this happened 40 minutes ago on the way to church. Too soon, bro, too soon. <laughs> but uh, there are those moments where even in close relationships, there's silence. Sometimes it's because somebody said, I don't want to talk about it, and it's a close to the conversation. But sometimes in marriage, silence is good. It's time for reflection. It's time for processing. Everybody who's a parent of a couple kids said amen. <laughs> silence can be good in marriage. 
But at the same time, there's what uh, counselors and marriage counselors might call negative silence, a silence that's a result of not knowing how to deal with ourselves and with others. It might be passive aggressiveness because you're hostile. It might be avoidance because uh, you feel uncomfortable. And it might be what some call the, the peace at all costs perspective, where there's something destructive present, but the spouse doesn't know how to handle it, so they just proceed in silence. And we see these situations in marriages where two have become one under the union of, of God, coming together before God. And that negative silence can result in division and harm in a marriage. And I think we recognize this. But we as the church, what the Bible calls again and again the, the bride of Christ, we've been talking about these sources of division and the need for unity in this series, Race and Politics. And we're continuing that conversation tonight. And we're continuing from Ephesians 2 because we read about God making two one, two groups of people one people under the blood of Jesus. Again, we've talked so much about this us versus them and this us and them and how God calls us to us for them. And two of the biggest sources of division, not just in our culture, not just in our nation, but in our church, are race and politics. You know, I was listening to ESPN radio. I don't, I don't know if you do, but I do all no, the time. I, yeah. I, I don't. ESPN radio. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to have to talk trash to Terrence about dropping the Cowboys name in this sanctuary too. Nice. Brick's a fan, but he's not here tonight, so he didn't even get to enjoy that. But I was listening to ESPN Radio this week, and, and there was a, a, a radio host who was talking about how, you know, there's coaches that are talking about politics and race uh, just in their post-game press conferences. There, there's other people who are taking a knee during the anthem to protest. There's all this uh, uh, race and politics that's infiltrated the sports world. And he said, you know, I feel a need to talk about it to progress in this area. And of course, when he's a, a sports radio host and he starts talking about race and politics, people are like, hey, bro, stick to sports, right? But if he can recognize the need to have that conversation, how much more should we as the church not only want to be in on that conversation, but bring the truth of Jesus Christ with us? So you would get feedback, though, from a series like this where you're talking about race and politics with people who would say, why don't you just stick to Jesus, right? It's because it makes them uncomfortable because some people are of the peace at all costs mold. They realize there's an elephant in the room, there's destructive division, but we can't, can't we just, can we just leave it be so we can proceed in peace? It's, uh, it's what, well, actually, we'll get to Martin Luther King Jr. in a moment. Jesus in Matthew 5, 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. You know, he didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers, because peacekeepers keep the peace at all costs. They just want to keep the peace and proceed to keep the peace, but God called us to be peacemakers. That's a small difference in the word, but a huge difference in meaning. Because peacemakers create peace, or as the New Living Translation says, it works for peace by bringing reconciliation to groups that are at odds with one another. Proverbs 10.10 10, Proverbs 10, 10 says, people who wink at wrong cause trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. You know, while peacemakers see a problem, they want to tackle it. Peacekeepers might see a problem and just wink at it because they don't want to go through the work of coming to a resolution. They embrace what's called a negative peace, which is as defined by Martin Luther King, it's the absence of tension. It echoes the characteristics of a negative silence, where positive peace, on the other hand, is the presence of resolution, reconciliation, and justice. Martin Luther King Jr. said that true peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. And how many of you know God can bring justice, reconciliation, resolution? But some people do like to bask in the absence of tension. And they would say that talking about race or politics from the pulpit is divisive, but it's the opposite. 
It brings to light division that God and only God can truly bring unity to. And some would say, well, racism is a thing of the past. In a way, you'd be right. Because not only is it a thing of the present, it is present today, but you look at our past, you look at the entire history of the world, it's always been present. Racism didn't start in America. It's not new to God. He's not just now trying to scramble to find a solution. You see in the Bible again and again the hostility between Jew and Gentile, and it's because racism at its root is a sin problem. Issues like racism, sexism, and all the isms and schisms, they'll exist until sin is totally dealt with. But that's why Ephesians 2 is so powerful. Jesus brought peace not just to one group, but to us. He brought peace between Jews and Gentiles. And there's no man's land between us and them. He planted the cross. But there are ways that we, even sometimes in the church, we try to create peace out of our perspective or, or our will or our flesh that really does more chaos and it causes more confusion than it does reconciliation, more division than it does healing. We just want to hit tonight on, on two where we together talking just see where, where people will lean in this way when really it's just causing division. And then lastly, we're going to look at solutions um, that Scripture gives us. But the first is, is this. The first is uh, people who say, uh, why, don't, why don't we just be colorblind? Right? Well, God is colorblind, right? But the ability to, to, to claim that we should be colorblind at the height of racial tension, it, it's privilege. And not only does it ignore blind spots, but... It creates blind spots, but I'm a, Nigel's going to take this. Uh, you can run with it, but uh, just this idea. I actually don't want him to stop talking. I was really enjoying it. <laughs> like, why am I here, bro? You're doing great. Um, yeah, I just, for me, you know, we've been talking about this for a while. And how does the gospel practically um, cause us to push forward aggressively into these issues to bring the unity of God into it? So when I hear people say things like God isn't colorblind and God doesn't see color, and I don't see color, I respect where somebody's trying to come from when they say that. They're trying to say, I don't judge somebody based on the externals. And I'm like, man, praise God for you and your heart behind that statement. However, um, there's two things about that statement. One is theologically incorrect and is culturally insensitive. It's theologically incorrect. And it's culturally insensitive. And, I, and again, when somebody says, I don't think that, you know, I'm just like, hey, I, I get where you're coming from, so I don't take offense. But it's just, one, is theologically incorrect because God's not colorblind. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made colors. Right? Like, he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have acknowledged this people group and that people group and all these type of things. It says we're made in the image of God. Didn't specify one color. All of humanity is the crown of creation. Therefore, all of the different hues of humanity are all made in the image of God. And the last thing he says, the way this whole dream ends up, he says, John, let me show you everything. Before we start, stop writing scripture, let me give you a vision of what it's going to look like. And in Revelation 7, 9, it says this. After I looked there before me stood a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, unity, and were holding palm branches in their hand. God says at the end, every single type and hue of person that has ever existed is going to stand before the throne of God and worship me together. Therefore, God is not colorblind. He, and, but the difference is in humanity, our, we'll look at our differences and we'll separate because of them. God looks at our differences and celebrates them. It says we can take all of these differences we have, come together, and celebrate the image of God that we were made into. But we can't, we can't do that without the grace of God because as we've proven through the history of humanity, we will take those issues and, and throw walls up to prove superiority versus inferiority to make us feel better about being here. 
That's where humanity lies itself. And it's, it's culturally insensitive to, to say that we're colorblind, even though that's something that we want to believe. We want to say that we don't judge based on color. Amen, we can do that, praise God, and then turn around and say, well, let me learn more about you and where you come from and how you see things and your perspective so we can celebrate life together versus throwing up dividing walls of hostility that Jesus broke down in Ephesians 2. And that's kind of where we are. So one of the things that we look at when we talk about, Justin said that you guys have been talking about predominant culture and majority culture and all the type of stuff like that. And I think that's fantastic. And some people get offended when you talk about it. But it's just the reality. It doesn't matter. We get offended because it's here in America, and that's got a certain connotation to it. It turns to white and black or white and something else, and that's just what it is in America. But you go to a different country, predominant culture is going to be something different. It's just, it's not a, it's not a white, black thing. This isn't a, a sin issue that started here in America. It goes back to Cain and Abel. It goes back to trying to prove something else and trying to prove we deserve to be here over this person. But one of the reasons why when we say certain things, they resonate in a different way in, a, 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 in, in, in an offensive tone, even though they're not wrong, is because... Because when we say things a certain way, it's like that, that statement does not have the same implication for you as predominant culture as it does for this other person in minority culture. What I'm saying is this. So here's what it gets down to. Like, we, we find ourselves in our society in our own corners. We find ourselves in certain corners. These corners, they're theological, they're racial, they're cultural, they're political. And what we do is we put our identity into our corners and we say, hey, I'm this person. I'm a Democrat. I'm this. I stand for this. And we put our identity on that so that if the things that we put our, our identity in are some way shaken or not incorrect, our entire identity is, is, in, is, in a, is, in, is being threatened. You see what I'm saying? So like we find ourselves in certain corners and in our corners, the place, the way that we find safety is we surround ourselves with people who act like us, think like us, look like us, breathe like us. So when, so out of those things, uh, language itself creates culture and leaders define it. You know, language creates culture. So in our corners, we will have certain rhetoric or narrative that resonates with people that agree with us and it feels comfortable and it feels right. So in one corner, we'll say things like black lives matter. And that means a certain thing in this corner. In another corner, we'll say things like all lives matter. And that means a thing in this corner. Both of these statements are 100% true, right? There's nothing, wrong, blue light, there's nothing wrong with these statements. However, the issue is when one statement is thrown, when one corner hears the other statement, they interpret it absolutely different than the other corner does. Right? So when somebody says black lives matter, yes, we the, we the historically oppressed of this country want you to know that our lives matter and we're saying it because we don't feel like they do. The other corner will hear that and say, wait a minute, terrorist group, just like KKK, and we're like, wait a minute, how did you get there and why were we terrorists? And, and, all the, and it just goes down this rabbit trail because there was this dividing wall of hostility that we put up so we couldn't listen to each other. So then somebody else says, all lives matter from this corner. And that's a true statement. All made in the Imago Dei image of God. That's a true biblical statement. However, the other corner says, wait a minute. We're over here saying black lives matter. Why did you respond with all lives matter? We're just trying to say this. But, but yeah, but this is a true statement. Okay, so if I say uh, I'm, I'm struggling with a certain form of cancer, I, I currently have brain cancer. And then you jump out and say, hey, bro, I hear you. That's not cool. All cancer matters. And we're like... That's true, but right now, this is what's hurting. So please don't, and that's kind of, so, but one statement that is true gets interpreted totally different over here, and because they were hashtags on Facebook and Twitter and not relationships with real people, we end up getting offended and losing our place. Amen? Yes. So, 
So it's just our corners have certain rhetoric that we have put our identity in, and, we have, and we're starting at this human plane where we can't even get past the rhetoric and the narrative to even get to a place where we can understand things. And here's what, it, here's what it is. People feel like, when our identity's in our corners, we feel like if we step outside of our corner, I'm now on like this unknown murky territory. I'm, I'm further away from people who don't agree with me and don't believe in, and don't believe like I do. So if I step out of this corner and, and risk listening or learning another perspective without putting, up, without putting up a defense, I may risk being wrong. And the challenge with that is only a problem if your identity is in your corner because you can't risk being wrong because your identity's there. The thing that we have to do is be willing to step out of our corners and say, listen, my perspective, first of all, everybody's perspective is valid. Experiences are valid. No, your experience is what it is. If you've experienced a certain type of thing, it is what it is. I had a friend. I was a youth pastor at a, a, a First Presbyterian Church for a little while in, in, uh, in Norfolk. And I had uh, a, a, a guy and a lady, they wanted to come and volunteer to help serve with me in the youth ministry. And before we got started, she said, I have to confess something to you. And I'm really, I'm really ashamed to say this, but I just want to be up front. I struggled with coming to work with you because I was robbed by four black guys and I'm scared of black men. And I was like, I just thank God that you told me that. Praise God for you. I mean, I'm sorry that happened. I'm not thanking God for that. But, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that that happened to you. But we started on this really, uh, she, she came like, I'm just confessing my sin before you because I wasn't trying to judge you, but I just couldn't bring myself to do this one. And I was like, hey, man, well, thank God for you. We, we're still good friends of this day. Me, him, and the wife, my wife, we're, we're all good friends of this day. But that perspective she had was very real and valid because it was experiential to her. I know I have personally never had a bad experience with a cop in my life. I am the only one in my circle of friends that can say that. So when I have certain friends, when they see a cop or a badge of lights go up, they have a whole different experience that pops up and resonates with them than I do. And that's valid because it happened. The thing is, those perspectives and those, and those experiences and those thoughts processes are valid. They're real to you. But they, at the end of the day, on their best day, they are all incomplete. And we have to be willing to step out of our corners and say, I am going to listen and learn from you. I'm going to be uh, uh, quick, slow to listen, uh, slow to speak, quick to listen, but I'm going to be willing to risk being wrong and risk having an incomplete perspective at best or risk being wrong at worst that I might have part of this whole debate incorrect. And because my identity is in Jesus and not in my corner, I can risk having a position incorrect because my identity is on a foundation that can't be shaken anymore. Yep. Amen. So that's kind of where we go. The gospel is our absolute truth, right? Like all of these other things that we put ourselves into, uh, all these other things we put our identities in, they can be wrong. They can be subjective. They can be incorrect because our identity is not ultimately in those. Our identity is ultimately in Jesus Christ and who he said he is. And us and him cannot be shaken. So if that's the case, we can step out and have real relationships with people who absolutely disagree with us. One, thing, one of the things that Kevin and I encourage at our church is you have to step out of your corner without compromising your convictions. You can step out of your corner without compromising your convictions. We're not asking anybody to, to step out and just step out automatically assuming they're in error. Step out, but listen, but be willing to let somebody into your life and have an authentic, real relationship that we can now say. Because the gospel calls us to the ministry of reconciliation. Until I've, until I've stepped into someone's life or allowed them to step into mine, beyond the policies, beyond the politics, beyond the corners, and get to know this individual and why they feel the way they feel, I will never understand somebody from a corner that's not mine. And the gospel compels us to do that because of the call God has given us.
Thanks, Nigel. So yeah, I love that he hit on especially Revelation 7, 9. That vision that John has that's inspired by God, that's in inspired scripture, and he sees every race, every color, everybody worshiping God. And I love that he don't imago Dei as well. We're created in the image of God. There's value in that. So when you, when you say let's be colorblind, you miss out on that beauty, the beauty that God has created. But the second thing uh, that, that you miss out on is you miss out on injustice that occurs due to color. When you say let's be colorblind, a lot of times it's, well, let's just stop talking about it. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say this, but uh, if we stop talking about race, it will, racism would just go away. Could we just stop talking about it and we wouldn't have to deal with it? But again, racism is a sin issue. How many sin issues in your life have you been like, well, maybe if I just ignore this, stop talking about it and have no conversations about it, it'll go away. And has that ever worked for you? I can't raise my hand. Always works for me, bro. Always. <laughs> But the, you talk about rhetoric as well. I've, I've even seen it in the, in the church where they say, well, it's not a, a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And, and like you would say, I see the, the truth, and I see what the truth they're getting at in that. I see where their heart is, I see um, what they're trying to say. But welcome back to the summer series, right? Big enough for both. You know, it, it's, a, it's a dumb dichotomy. It's because of a sin issue that we have a skin issue, and that one that's resulted historically in so much injustice. And, yeah, like, go ahead. Because like, right there, like, we're dealing with the, the racism and the classism and the injustice and all that. We're dealing with the fruit of the problem. Right? That's the fruit of the problem. The root of the problem is the sin in the heart of man. Right. The root of the problem is the sin in the heart of man. So, like, my friend uh, Pastor Jack Gaines who's in the back has mentored me on. We look at Cain and Abel, and we see, we see that this issue has popped up to where Cain is, wants, to, wants to do things for God his way, right? And Abel's doing things God's way for God. And he steps in and says, well, I'm going to do it my way, but since I can't get back at God, I'm going to kill my brother because I'm just so, I need somewhere to take this aggression out on. And since that time, we have seen man continuing to leverage himself over, other, over the others. Like, if we leave this culture and we go over to Africa, we see the Rwandan genocide. Those black people fighting black people. Right? We go to Europe. We got Protestants and Catholics. White people fighting white people. It's not, a, it's not just an American white-black issue. The history of America starts us there in this context. So when we say that, when we say slavery, we go back to American issue. But that's the fruit of what is really the root of it, and it's a sin issue. And it takes us right back to that. So if the gospel is the only thing that deals with the sin issue, then the gospel equally compels us to actively address and deal with uh, the skin issue as well. That's good. But yeah, we don't want a blind spot. Because we're saying we want to be colorblind, being blind to injustice. Jesus connects justice to intimacy with God. He says, you want to be in intimacy with God, you have to seek justice. Matthew 23, verse 23. He's speaking to the religious leaders. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income of your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. Saying worship without justice, mercy, and faith is fruitless. It's worthless. Your worship needs to go hand in hand with those things. And I think it's funny because I think most of us, if we want to uh, seek God, encounter God, get the quote-unquote warm fuzzies or, or just have a spiritual high, what we think of is, well, let me uh, turn on some Jesus culture. Uh, let me get a, a warm cup of coffee from the Keurig, my blanket, huddle up on the couch, and read from Psalms or Proverbs, right? Might even throw it on the gram. Put it on social media and tell the world about it. But... I do that on Mondays, by the way, Mondays. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, hey, you want an encounter with me? You can encounter me by wrestling with what I don't like. 
by wrestling with injustice. You'll meet Jesus there. We talk all the time about how we want to serve the community. We want to serve the, the, the poor, the hungry. You're going to meet Jesus in those moments where you're serving them. And Jesus says, hey, you want, a, you want a fresh encounter with me? Meet me in those things that I wrestle with. And Jesus, I love that in the Gospels, you never see uh, how anybody's skin, how their health, how their clothing, how their hygiene, right, would even get in the way of him encountering them, of him meeting them where they're at. He lived perfectly. God's advice to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Samuel's looking for the, the king to succeed Saul, and uh, he's going through David's brothers, and, and God says to him, this is his advice to Samuel, he says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And again, I've heard people would say, well, look, he's saying don't look at the appearance. We should, we should be colorblind. Don't, don't look at people and judge them by appearance. But I love that just verses later, right? Before Daniel anoints David, he gives an assessment of his appearance in verse 12. He says this, he was glowing with health and had fine appearance and handsome features. I copied and pasted that into my dating profile while I was still a bachelor, right? <laughs> glowing with health, fine appearance, and handsome features. We all want that description. But this whole verse is based on and makes mention of David's appearance. So is Samuel being disobedient to God who had just told him, don't judge him by his appearance? No, because what God is saying, it's not about not seeing people and who they are, the experience they've had, all the things Nigel just hit on. It's not about some kind of spiritual x-ray vision where we don't see people, we only see their heart because that would be creepy. But it, it is saying, it's talking about the lens we see people through, the bias we have, the belief system we see them through, preconceived notions that we have when we see somebody's appearance. Everybody thought Saul was going to be a great king because he was taller than everybody else. This guy's good looking, right? He'll be great because that was a preconceived notion. God's saying no. See everything. See the heart. See the experience. See all of that. Because prejudice and racism, they're not caused by seeing physical differences. You know, the youngest child can see physical differences, but it doesn't automatically escalate to racism. And again, Samuel lists David's appearance and features in, in God-inspired scripture. Again, in Revelation, a vision inspired by God, John sees the, the different tribes, the different colors there. Eradicating racism is, is going to be due to a radical change in bias and belief. Not, not vision, but bias and belief. We just said it's about the lens. And, and uh, it's about the way you see people, but it's also about zooming out that lens. The second way we sometimes miss the peace that Ephesians 2, when God wants to bring, is, is we fail to see uh, systemic, structural sin and issues. We see racism as an event, as isolated incidents, but it's also a lineage and it's also a legacy. To talk about racism is not just about bringing up the past and whining about the past. It's about bringing to light the legacy that's been passed down because history gets passed down. We inherit attitude and advantage. We inherit disparities. We might inherit privilege. You know, in Proverbs 20 and 23, Proverbs 11, 1, these two Proverbs, God says the same thing. When God says something in Scripture twice, you better be listening because he means it. And he says unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. Unequal scales. Systems and scales that were purposefully inaccurate to cheat people when they were dealing with them. He, he frowned upon that. Now, when they were trading goods back then, they used to weigh it, but scales now, they're an allegory, they're an analogy to justice in our culture. You see the Statue of Liberty holding a scale, and they've long been in our country unequal weights. 
But again, racism didn't start in our country with his Statue of Liberty. It didn't start in our culture, as, as Nigel said. This isn't new to God. It's not new to the world. And again, you, as you so eloquently said, you see systemic issues in every culture in history. Because pride isn't a new problem. <laughs> Seeking your interest over the interests of others, that's not a new problem. That's been an issue ever since sin met humanity. And I've seen structural or systemic racism defined as this, the cumulative effect of feelings, beliefs, and practices that become embodied and expressed in the policies, practices, rules, regulations, values, histories, records, and the like, which accordingly disadvantage the devalued race and privilege the valued race. So why do we see this again and again? Sin. Right, it's a safe answer. And in, in, in back there where the kids are, you want the positive answers. The safe answer is always Jesus. The negative answer, it's, it's because of sin. But we also have to recognize systemic, structural sin. Again, in a fallen world where no person is perfect, we all struggle with pride. And systems themselves are run by these people. We shouldn't be surprised when systems and structures in the world aren't perfect. Look at the church, right? We're the children of God, and we're still trying to perfect this thing because we're all broken and we need his grace. But we often see sin through this individual lens, individual culpability uh, with an individual response. I've sinned against God, and I must repent. A, a small lens that it doesn't always make sense of systemic issues and social maladies. It's this tendency sometimes in the church to overemphasize individualism, free will, and personal relationships with God that makes systemic issues invisible. Where we see, again, racism as an event in an individual circumstance, while ignoring the environment that, as you were saying, is the root system that created that fruit. We're seeing the tip of the iceberg when we see a protest or when we see a riot, but really, there's, that's, just, that's just sparked by so much. This whole ecosystem that's been created through slavery, Jim Crow, gentrification, the war on drugs, housing discrimination, and beyond. Those are deep roots. You want to say something? Yeah, man. The only thing... Um when you, say, when you say privilege, like, all types of stuff happens. Wall goes up, corners go, and people, you know what I'm saying, it just gets crazy. And understandably so, because sometimes some of that conversation, like all conversation and all things have been used correctly and incorrectly. But basically, um, at its core, when somebody says anything about privilege, it's just saying if you are privileged by a particular system, if things do, or do, if things do not change, it doesn't affect you. That's it. Like, if this, doesn't, if this doesn't change, if things don't get better, if the stuff that people are protesting about in the streets, right, wrong, or indifferent, doesn't change, it doesn't affect anything. Like, this, the, the, the charges that are being leveraged, if, they, if they're not found out to be right or if they're found out to be absolutely right, it doesn't matter because it doesn't affect. And that's kind of what typically is meant um, in a healthy version of privilege. And it's not, it's not this, this hidden system that's this against this whole group of people. It's just... If this doesn't change, I'm good. It doesn't really matter. Therefore, it's not on my radar of things to care about. Uh, and, that, and then, you know, uh, some people take that and, uh, and, and begin to uh, leverage charges against an entire group of people who would sit here and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know. I, I didn't do anything. I never owned slaves. Like, why are you mad? And, it's, and, it just, and then the shots back and forth from the corners continue as opposed to just saying, hey, this is why I feel this way, right, wrong, or indifferent, whatever. And what's powerful is you can use privilege. <laughs> you can use your influence to, to deal with these maladies. And, and some of you might be listening to this and saying, what are you even talking about, right? But I know when we watched Racial Taboo, a lot of eyes were open just to the history and things that have happened, legislation, um, all, 
all those types of things that have got us to where we are now. And, and I've also heard people say, well, why didn't or why don't uh, people of color, uh, whether it's black or, or another, why don't they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Why, why not? And there's systemic issues involved. Like if you look at the town of Rosewood in central Florida in the 1920s, it was a thriving community. And it was massacred and burned down. You look at Black Wall Street in Oklahoma in 1919, similar situation, uh, where they had pulled themselves up a successful town. And again, just the boot of systemic racism was on their proverbial neck. But again, that's history. We could spend all night there, um, but you, you could spend 30 minutes, right? We spent half of that documentary just looking at the history. But what, what do we do to move forward? How do we proceed? You could talk about all that. What's the solution? How do we reconcile? And that's where I just want Nigel to take the floor again. I want to give a good example, too. We have these histories of these, these cities and all types of stuff you can do for hours and hours. Another example uh, in uh, the city, I believe it's uh, Sanford, Florida. Forgive me if the city's incorrect, where the whole Trayvon Martin situation went down. Uh, so we all know how that happened. And whatever side of, of, the law, of the case you were on, whatever, that's not even the case. What happened in the actual city while they were waiting for a verdict is something that's rarely reported and absolutely amazing. Uh, and, it's, and it's actually covered in um, a DVD called Racial Reconciliation, The Eagle's Journey uh, that my friend Pastor Jack Gaines is in. And there, there was uh, this pastor who works heavy in, uh, in reconciliation work, went to the city, gathered the pastors together, all across denominational racial lines or whatever. They're like, whatever happens with this case, how can we as the church serve this city that is going through something that's about to erupt and overflow into our entire country? So the verdict comes out and there are protests and riots in the streets and all types of stuff going on everywhere around the country except that city. In the actual city where the verdict happened, there was peace because the church stepped out of its own corners and came together under the unifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, we look different, we act different, but the one thing that unifies us is the one thing we're going to stand on here to tackle this issue in our city. And the city, the city where you would expect the most stuff to erupt wasn't the case. God can do so much if the church would just be who he is, who she is supposed to be. If we could just unify on the gospel, not, not being blind to issues we have to deal with and real hurts and real pains. I had a friend hit me up who's an extreme conservative friend, and we have dialogue all the time, and I love this brother. And he hit me up like, man, my candidate won, and I don't, I, I just, I'm not comfortable celebrating. I'm going to say, well, why? And he said, because I see all of this, whether I agree or not, very real pain is caused on the other, and I don't know what to make of that. I feel like my celebration on Facebook is spitting in their face, and I don't know what to do. And I was like, man, I just thank God for your heart, brother. I'm not saying that's right or wrong or whatever, but I just thank God that you care outside of your own corner what's happening. And that's what the church did, and we saw so much peace there. And what, one of the things we look at here is, so we, we go back to these different arguments of, well, how was I... Was I really involved, and I didn't have anything to do with it, and this, and you know, you know, let's let's just all move past it and get past it and all that type of stuff. But the but the thing is, we see a biblical precedent for the people of God coming to God on behalf of their entire people and their nation and their culture and the history of their people and going to God and repenting on behalf of their people. And we see that narrative. We see Daniel. He says here in Daniel 9, I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. 
He's going to God on his own. We as a people have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. We've rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and your laws. And I would say judgment begins in the house of God. The church has to be the one to come before God and say, God, we need to repent for America, and we need to repent for this, that, and the third, and whatever people group I'm connected to, we might need to do that. But as the church, we need to say, God, we have been handling this entire issue wrong. We've been looking at every other issue except the fact that there's sin involved, and we as the church need to come together and repent about how we've dealt with the race issue and the slave issue and all these type of things. As the church has to do it first, because if the church can't get reconciliation right, the world is absolutely hopeless. If we don't understand the unifying power of the gospel, I don't expect anybody else to get it. You know what I mean? So that's the first thing. So we see Daniel doing that. We see the same example in Nehemiah. Let, uh, Nehemiah 1, 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He's repenting for generations before him for sins that were done in, in, his, in his land that did not glorify God. And my point with that is, none of this is, is, to, is to get to a guilty place, but there is a biblical precedent saying, can I repent on behalf of my people and my nation for a wrong that was very well done? Because the biggest issue, when, when all of these things started to erupt again, and one would say, uh, you know, talking specifically about the videos and the police things, one would say that this isn't new, the cameras are new. Uh, but when all these things started to erupt and become forefront and the wall started going up all over the place, uh, it started to get to, listen, man, these are isolated incidents, this, that, and the third. Uh, I never heard people on the black side of the fence saying, I, I'm just waiting for white people to understand how I feel. It, they would say, I'm just waiting for somebody to actually care about how I feel and to listen. Whether I'm, whether I'm interpreting this wrong, somebody needs to listen and say, you know, the wound isn't done unless it's healed correctly. If there's still hurt and there's, and there's pain, there's evidence that there's still a wound, possibly. And to say, well, there can't be a wound because laws were enacted 50 years ago that said that this is over. So there haven't been any water hoses in the street and there have been no cops attacking. So you're okay. But when the video pops up and it's reminiscent of, that's, just, that's what my parents went through. It enacts a very fresh wound. And to say, hey, well, you know, you weren't there. So what's the big deal is the ultimate callousness and pride. And we need to go back and say, is there something on behalf? of a people group that we need to repent for and take to God because as the priest, as First Peter calls the church, priest before God, we have to be the ones that say, God, we are repenting on behalf of the sins of our country and what we've done. And I would even say this. I would say that as, as, uh, as our country and as people, as white people are the only ones who can say we're repenting on behalf of what Anglos did in this country, black people have to be able to go and, God, we repent on behalf of unforgiveness and bitterness. Everybody, at the end of the day, all have fallen short, right? One of my, one of a rapper I like named Shaolin, he said it this way. He said, everybody's guilty. Everybody's filthy. Before God on judgment day is where everybody will be. Every single person finds it. And this isn't to say that one does not bear more weight than the other, but it is to say everybody at the end of it has to get on their face. Reconciliation cannot happen unless the reconciled comes and says, hey, I am to, I'm, I, I please forgive me for what I've done. And the reconciled receives that and extends forgiveness, right? That has to happen. But everybody has to repent to God because everybody's guilty of sinning before God, whether it's bitterness, unforgiveness, pride, all of us. 
needed the grace of God. The Jew and Gentile on the cross being made one because both Jew and Gentile had sinned before God. Does that make sense? So there's, there's, a, there's a precedence there to do that. And when our identity and hope is in God and not in our position, we can do that without feeling as though uh, we've, we've uh, oh, as if we're losing part of ourselves in an argument. I just feel like we can't, as the body of Christ, place our position in anything other than the gospel. We can, but when it's in the gospel, we can then identify with other areas of our people group, our ethnicity, our politics, we can identify, but bring the gospel into those places as opposed to, bringing, as opposed to uh, letting those places be the rock we stand on, and then the gospel is kind of an addition to our real identity. You know what I mean? God has, been given, God has given us a great gift in Christ, uh, the ministry of reconciliation that we are called to carry forward, and we can only do it when we do that. Amen. Well, I don't, I don't want to end tonight any different than we would any of our other services. And the question is, well, what does this practically mean? How do you move forward? Uh, he already hit on some of those steps. But you look in the, in the Bible. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. He wrote two letters to the church in Corinth. And it was a diverse crowd of both Jews and Gentiles, the same groups that Ephesians 2 said, hey, you guys need to become one. And he gave two pieces of advice in his second letter uh, in, in the letter to Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 5, he says, we use God's mighty weapons not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. See, again, here, to go all the way back to the beginning where it's talking about peacemaking versus peacekeeping, the weapons weren't to maintain peace. The weapons were to tear down strongholds. And I love that the King James Version, it talks about every imagination. Other translations say every thought, every bias, every belief that would fuel racism or it would fuel seeing somebody else's other. Or this, even just this idea of us versus them, not just black and white. If we're coming out of election season, red and blue, where, where we see those things you take those to Christ, you take those to the cross, where, again, he was just sharing, we're all on even ground, and it gets torn down. Why does he talk about teaching them to obey Christ? Because, again, when you bring them to the cross where Christ died, you see this gift of peace and unity under his blood. But there's a, another passage in 2 Corinthians I want Nigel to hit on real quick. In, in chapter 5, this sums up our work, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we would truly live out this reconciling work, we'll find that when Jesus whittled down the entire Old Testament in the two phrases, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the vertical relationship. After that, the horizontal is possible and love your neighbor as yourself. If we don't get the vertical right, we will never get the horizontal right. If we don't get the gospel right, the world is absolutely hopeless. We have to get it right in-house first before we can never hope to carry it effectively out-house. So God has called us to this. That's our work. 
We are his ambassadors imploring the world, be reconciled to God, and then this will get right. That's good. If I could just have Demetri and Rich come up too at the end, because you look at both of these verses, the work that's going to tear down strongholds is the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the work that is going to reconcile us to God is the work of the Son through the Holy Spirit. This, this salvation we enjoy uh, is through that. And, and just as he was just sharing, until we get vertical reconciliation right on our own and we come to God and, and we deal with ourselves and our relationship with God, every attempt at horizontal reconciliation, if we don't get vertical reconciliation first, it's just going to be recycled, unsuccessful attempts of the past. So really, I just want to close out tonight coming to God and saying, fill me up again. We're going to sing, fill me up, because we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If one, we're going to use God's mighty weapons that tear down strongholds and biases and belief systems. And then if we're ever going to get reconciliation right, it's going to come through his spirit in us. But let me just pray. Lord God, we thank you for tonight. God, we know that these are weighty issues. God, but we thank you that they're not new to you. Nothing to you is new under the sun. And God, you already gave the solution in Ephesians 2 that we can turn to and find hope in. God, and place our faith in where you put the cross. Again, we, we opened this series talking about the trenches in World War I and how uh, there was that no man's land. And in 1914, on Christmas morning, celebrating the coming of Jesus, those two Groups of enemy soldiers came together in no man's land. One of the biggest battles in history, Lord God, biggest wars in history. You were the emulsification, a big word that we broke down. You're going to have to podcast that, God, that brought them together. God, we pray that in our lives, God, you would eradicate every line in the sand that delineates us versus them, where you're calling us to reach them, where you're calling us to unify with them under the blood of your son. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit tonight would fill us again. And God, give us the mind of Christ and give us your eyes. God, that see people's hearts, but they also see that, that, that they're made in your image, Lord God. God, every experience has value. Their shape that, that's been crafted by you and by their lives has value, Lord God. But God, I pray tonight as we stand and we can all stand to our feet. God, that as we go back into worship, God, that you would fill us up with your spirit. It's our only hope. God, the cross is our only hope. Jesus and the work of the cross is our only hope, Lord God. And we ask you tonight again to fill us up, Lord God. There's work ahead of us. <laughs> There's sacrifices to be made, Lord God. But as this song says, you provide the fire, we'll provide that sacrifice. God, as you fill us with your spirit, we'll do that work. God, as you remind us of the cross, we'll do the work of reconciliation. But fill us up tonight, Lord God. Fill us with your spirit. Give us your strength in Jesus' name.